0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Almost made it in one breath. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs eleven once again, wrapping up the final half of the chapter, Proverbs chapter eleven, and uh, dealing with point twelve in the outline. Most of the verses from verses 16 through 31 refer in some way to the rewards of righteous and kind living. This practical theology is often counterfeited by those who desire a personal morality apart from the absolute standard of God's word. And uh, the shallow approach that so many people take that, yeah, you can read some verses and you can see uh, good people and bad people, righteous and wicked, and say, well, I can be a good person. And if I'm a good person, then good things happen, right? Right. And uh, and so the the desire, of course, on the part of the carnal mind, is to uh, try to be a good person yourself, and uh, and not have to follow all those restrictions that that mean nasty Bible has. You know, it doesn't let you have any fun and all of your fornication and whatever else, you know, stealing and whatever else you want to do. And so we want to be cautious about it, as we do preach the passages of the Bible that are very clear and very practical and very moral. Uh, obviously, we preach that. we want to live the righteous life, but we want to live the righteous life in the right way and for the right reasons, and, uh, and then we allow for God to provide in His wisdom as far as this goes. so we 'll expand upon this. There are subpoints, A through I, and we left off last week where b or oh, G Okay, I know we haven 't talked about the beautiful women yet, so we 'll talk about that 's D. So I think we did A, B, and C, and I'm pretty sure we read all the verses in C. So we'll pick up there after we uh, after we open with a word of prayer. Shall we pray? Mighty Father, we do come before you this morning, and we thank you for this day. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for the colder weather. Thank you for the diminished cedar counts and the opportunity to uh, think clearly and speak so father this day is in your hands use it to glorify your son open our minds to what we need to learn father uh, convict us through the scriptures of that which is truth i thank you father in jesus christ's name amen all right so this is point 12 and we looked at verses 16 and 17 as we speak about the personal benefits to be personally enriched through gracious and merciful living. Uh, We see this, verse 16, a gracious woman attains honor. And verse 17, the merciful man does himself good. And the personal benefits that accrue to your soul when you're walking right, when you are adjusted to God's standard, you are personally enriched. And of course, that has nothing to do with the earthly wealth you might also have. That's a separate study. Uh, The ruthless man attain riches and the cruel man does himself harm. And uh, the the tandem of that, of course, is the corollary. Ruthless and cruel living is personally harmful, even when it may financially advance what you're doing. Subpoint B, we looked at verses 18 and 19. Sowing and reaping of the wicked and the righteous couldn't be more different. And uh, the contrast that we have it here. Uh, The wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. And that's the contrast. He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, but he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. And these are the natural, normal Consequences of these various lifestyles or death styles, as I like to call them, uh, when you are in defiance of the Scripture, then you might expect that there will be consequences accordingly. All right? Now, the, as we've said many times, under wisdom literature, God is revealing the norm. He's revealing the normal way things operate. And are there exceptions? Of course. There are seasons when the righteous will suffer. There are seasons under undeserved suffering when you are walking right and you still face undeserved suffering. You face things. There are also seasons when it sure appears to us like those wicked dogs are getting over (laughs) and it it upsets us. We want to know why. The Bible says that these wicked guys are supposed to get it. So why don't they get it? You know, and and, then we're very impatient because we want to, you know, we want to administer the, the judgment ourselves. Anyway, of course, we understand the balance on this, the setting for this, that these verses are true. We are, though, going to get down to the other principles by the end of the chapter to make sure that we're clear that God is not a genie in a bottle and he's not our slave and we don't uh, say the right words and do the right things and then feel like somehow he, he owes us or that we're entitled to something. Uh, we, we, he doesn't owe us a thing. (laughs) He's already given us eternal life in Christ when he didn't know us that. See, and uh, let's not confuse grace with what we've earned and deserved. All right. Point C then. Where'd you go? The heart drives the walk. The heart drives the walk. Remember thinking precedes doing and the heart attitude shapes the thinking. The heart drives the walk and sparks either abomination or delight to the Lord. And so we have verses 20 and 21 here that speak to these heart attitudes and speak to not only the walk, but the ways behind the walk. The perverse and hard are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. And so that those couldn't be more opposite. The abomination is what he's pushing far away from him. And the delight is what he's drawing close to him or hugging, embracing in his bosom is his delight. So abomination, push it away. You want nothing to do with it. And uh, delight, you want uh, intimacy. You want closeness. And uh, and there it is. Verse 21, assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. And it's interesting, too, how it's the righteous that have the reference to the descendants. The wicked make no reference to the descendants. And uh, it's a, it's a, there's, a I think, some other parallels we might draw out of that poem as well related to those things. Well, if it's a hard issue, then we could be in trouble because the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. We might be kind of grim if we think that man, you know, my heart drives this thing. Well, good news, we get a new heart, all right? We have a new heart in Christ. He's constantly creating it new. It's created new at the moment of our salvation, but it's created anew again and again and again. Every time we confess, every time we're cleansed from all unrighteousness, uh, as David said in Psalm 51, created me a clean heart, created me a new heart, we're told. So uh, we can take the uh, the abominable heart passages and put them in contrast with the new heart passages and uh, and thank the God and thank the Lord that we have that new heart in which to uh, to rejoice. All right, so did we see all these? We saw Psalm twenty four four, Psalm fifty one ten, Matthew five eight, and Acts fifteen nine. Is that correct? We went through all those. All right, well then we can move on to the pretty women. Proverbs eleven twenty two. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. And uh, there it is. And our culture has so many illustrations. I could spend the entire hour on Instagram <laughs> just showing picture after picture after picture of Hollywood celebrity and all, you know, Kardashian this and that and everything else. And, and all these women and men, people that, that are viewed favorably, are viewed as attractive right? Generally speaking. And yet the condition of their soul is as ugly in, in a diametrically proportional way. I mean, like an inverse proportion, it seems like uh, related to that is as, as beautiful as the externals can be, um, as ugly as the internals can be. And this is uh, something the scripture I think makes very clear. So the way I put it in point D, outer beauty without inner beauty is a tragic waste of outer beauty. You know, I mean, goodness, if you're going to have all that outer beauty, you might as well do something with it. How about developing some inner beauty and uh, have the best of both worlds when uh, when it comes down to that? But, um, you know, I, I felt just luckier than anything in the world when I met Sharon. I thought, holy smokes, how does this happen? You know, here's, here's this woman that has this godliness and this integrity and this love for Jesus Christ and Scripture. And then, man, on top of all that. Yeah, man. Uh, deepest brown eyes i would ever seen in my life, and, and thankfully my children all ended up with those eyes too, huh? <laughs> uh, related to that. All right, so Proverbs eleven twenty two, clearly, I mean, so yeah, you put a ring of gold in a swine snout, what do you got? Yeah, he's still a pig, okay, it's still the same pig it was before you dressed it up, um, no more attractive than they were before, okay, and uh, and you've just defiled the ring of gold. I mean, really, what are you going to do with it after you pull it out of the swine's snout? You know, um, that that would take some scrubbing. And, uh, and 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 clearly, the the illustration here says it does nothing whatsoever. It has zero improvement, zero benefit to the swine, and zero benefit to the one looking at the swine. Uh, it accomplishes absolutely nothing. And so, with zero benefit, um, we realize that the uh, the beautiful woman. Uh, without discretion it's the same way zero benefit it's not the woman's outer beauty that benefits her husband all the days of his life okay go through proverbs 31 and you find out that it's her it's her capacity for for love it's her capacity for service and then what she does in uh, the beauty of her soul that benefits her husband and her children and her community in uh, the process there so uh, let's look at that proverbs thirty-one thirty. Proverbs thirty-one thirty. It's also interesting to me as well how standards can change and over time and different. Even even earthly standards of beauty are different from generation to generation. And you go back to earlier days and, and some of the models that that uh, were considered the the pinnacle of of, of beauty uh, back then they wouldn't be models today. It's just different. Uh, I guess I don't know appetites or tastes or whatever related to that. In fact, most scholars believe in the ancient world the the highest standard of beauty was the was the motherly look in uh, in certain ways, and uh, which I I don't know I can't prove that, but they they sure write a lot of journal articles about it, and I'm curious. I guess it's grounded in the artwork or the the uh, pottery. That they uncover that have women of certain shape, but uh, I don't know. I get suspicious sometimes. So what am I reading here? Proverbs thirty-one thirty, and obviously this is the the long conclusion to or the the summary of a lot of verses that lead up to this. Remember Psalm thirty-one is an acrostic psalm, uh, or I'm sorry, Proverbs thirty-one is an acrostic. And so it's, it, it works its way through the letters of the Hebrew alphabet starting in verse 10 where you start with the Aleph and then the Beth, the Gimel, the Aleph. Hey, wow, well, you work your way through the Hebrew alphabet in, uh, in each of these verses so that uh, you know little, little Jewish girls can memorize this poem uh, by working their way through the alphabet. And it's a great uh, memory device, a great aid to her, uh, to her memory. So uh, an excellent wife who can find her worth is far above Jewel's. We start right off there in verse 10 and we're asking ourselves, what does this woman look like? Okay, and there's not a clue to her physical appearance, is there? Okay, it doesn't say anything about her hair or height or what she looks like or anything at all. Uh, the heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. Still don't know what she looks like. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Still don't know what she looks like. Uh, she looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. Aha, she has hands. That's our first clue as to what she looks like. She has hands. Well, that's attractive. All right. And um, she's like merchant ships. Now, that's not a description of what she looks like. We still don't know what she looks like. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is still night, gives food to her household, portions to her maidens, and we see some character aspects there related to older women to younger women and the promotion of, of virtue and and uh, and that. She considers a field and buys it from her earnings. She plants a vineyard. Still don't know what she looks like. She girds herself with strength. Hmm. And makes her arms strong. All right, so she has arms. Well, we knew that because she has hands. All right, so she has Still don't know what she looks like. And uh, I mean, from everything we've read here, honestly, she could be the, uh, I'm not going to say that, I'm on tape, I'll get in trouble. I mean, think about it, think about it. This has nothing to do with external beauty, all right? Um, She senses that her gain is good, her lamp does not go out at night, she stretches out her hands to the distaff, her hands grasp the spindle, she extends her hand to the poor, she stretches out her hands to the needy. I mean, how many times do her hands get mentioned in this in this uh, paragraph? She's not afraid of the snow for her household. For all her children are clothed with scarlet. She makes uh, coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. And uh, so, uh, with all the attention uh, that that is seems to be in our culture uh, put on the clothing, put on the the fashion, put on the the uh, what have you um we kind of waited 20 uh 12 verses or 13 verses to finally get down to what she's wearing (laughs) you know Uh, you would think it'd be in verse number one with with uh, priorities today that uh, what she's wearing is is the first thing on her mind you know but uh here it's down to verse 22 before we see what she's wearing her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land well that's outrageous why isn't she known for something? Why is it his reputation that's that's involved here? See, his name, his reputation. He is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she smiles at the future. So she has other priorities besides the externals. Besides the, I mean, yes, she is wearing clothing. She's making her clothing. Um, but the uh, strength and dignity is her character that clothes her. And this, of course, carries across to uh, the New Testament as well. She opens her mouth. Ah, finally, another body part. (laughs) Okay. Um, Still don't know what she looks like. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also... And he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Still don't know what she looks like. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. So there's all we've got to work with here. You know, charm, her personality, her mannerisms, how she carries herself, beauty, physical appearance, what she looks like. You know, um, put those both together and you know she evidently had everything and he said none of that matters because a woman who fears the lord she shall be praised that's the the real beauty is is the is her fear of the lord the reverence that she has before the lord so give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates see so uh, he he of course magnifies her when he's See, so it goes both directions. She magnifies him. He magnifies her. We have uh, the aspects on this. Did you see just the other night that that uh, that um, Hollywood guy got in trouble? That he was accepting an award. Ryan Gosling, this actor, he's accepting an award and and thanking his wife and praising his wife and because she had sacrificed in in the recent years uh, that she had been pregnant and raising you know having babies and and uh, because she had put her and she's she's an actress herself she's got a career she's you know but in the they decided in their marriage that this was going to be a season where she was going to be staying at home and supporting him anyway so i thought it was a marvelous speech i thought it was great he was thanking her he was praising her and he wasn't uh, diminishing what she was doing he said it was of infinite value and uh, oh man alive as he, he's been he's been crucified for three days running now I think something like that and uh, two or three days anyway and Twitter and the blogs and everything else um, because he praised her and her role as a mother how insane is that all right anyway this is what we have here in in Proverbs 31 outer beauty without inner beauty is a tragic waste of outer beauty uh, other passages, I think, go well with this. Ezekiel 16, 15. Ezekiel. <laughs> and uh chapter that uh, rabbis would not let uh, a young man read this until he was of a certain age. Likewise, Song of Solomon. Young men don't be reading that until they're of a certain age. <coughs> like when you're 30 and married, you can... Uh, you can read some of these. Again, there's a larger context to this. And, and, and it also, I think, reflects well on what God does in caring for each one of us. He's speaking in metaphor related to the Jewish people, but uh, it, it does speak very well to how God cares for us individually in our lives, through our childhood, into adult life, how he cares for us on these things. So in the early part of the chapter, he's talking about... Uh, her birth and and uh how she was thrown out and, and he cared for her and so forth. And then she grew up and uh verse seven uh you grew up, became tall, reached the age for fine ornaments. Okay. You reach, you know, a girl reaches a particular age and she starts, you know, makeup and perfume and <clears throat> earrings and whatever else. Um your breasts were formed and your hair was grown, yet you were naked and bare. And, and you know, um, <coughs> some of this is stuff we don't usually talk about in in uh, mixed company or public or whatnot, but this is what the scripture is laying out here, okay? And here's a girl, and, uh, you know, when she's younger and running around naked with all the other kids, it's no big deal, but you reach a point where you say, all right, we're done with that, you're going to be clothed now moving forward and uh, you've reached a certain time of your life. Then uh, verse 8, more time goes by. I saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your your nakedness. And he takes her. He takes custody of her. He marries her. You became mine. I swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil. And, and, and we see here foreshadowings of what we learn about in with Christ in the church. We see foreshadowings of, of what, we're, what we read about in Ephesians chapter 5. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth, put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck, okay? Because husbands like, you know, providing for their wives, dressing them up, seeing things that they like seeing things. Anyway, um, also put a ring in your nostril, okay? Different culture. (laughs) I'm not sure I would, I don't know, people today like that kind of thing. Earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Now, I took the time to read all that, and here's why. It's the opposite of Proverbs 31 right in proverbs 31 we have not a clue what that woman looks like but we know a tremendous amount verse after verse after verse about her character this woman the only thing we know about her is verse after verse after verse of what she looks like how she's dressed all the externals we don't know one whit about is, is this girl even saved is, does she love the Lord? Does she fear the Lord? Is she in the Word of God? Is she, is she, is she a hard worker? Is she a lazy glutton? Is she what? We know nothing about her character, her, her, her uh, godliness, her salvation. Nothing whatsoever about the inner beauty. All we have is the externals. All we have is what we can look at. Okay. And that's a problem, <laughs> obviously. So here's the key then in verse 15. So she's a beautiful woman, obviously, but you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. And you took some of your clothes and made for yourself high places of various colors and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and my silver, which I had given you. And made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. And you took your embroidered cloth and covered them, offered my oil, my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey with which I fed you. You uh, would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So what happened, declares the Lord God. Anyway, it gets uglier from here. (laughs) All right. It's a bad chapter. So... Um, Again, inner beauty is the key. Outer beauty without inner beauty is a tragic waste of outer beauty. Uh, Nahum, chapter 3. Don't get to Nahum very often, do we? Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Here we go. Boy, the Logos gets you rusty, doesn't it? You just get used to typing NAH and boom, there you are. Anyway, there's wrath on the way in verses one through three. And uh, woe to the bloody city. Remember, Nahum is giving the message that Jonah wanted to give (laughs) because when Jonah preached, Nineveh repented. Uh, Nahum, 150, or how many years later it was, Nahum arrives, and uh, he would love to see Nineveh repent. Um, He has the attitude Jonah should have had, but then he gives this horrible message because there's no repenting after this. Um, The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses, bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, And countless dead bodies, they stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And so what happens to your beauty then? <laughs> All right. Obviously, it's a metaphor. It's applying to the nation and the judgment there, but also on a personal level, illustrating the uh, the ugliness of that. Finally, First Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, to get our New Testament parallel. Should know this very well. Bobbles the mind when I encounter these Christian feminists, which is rather oxymoronic in my mind, because in Christ there is no male or female, but be that as a way. Um, they 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 moan and complain and they hate the fact that, that it to them it seems that the women are being chewed out and and criticized and and um They've got six verses here, and the husband just get the one verse in verse 7. Failing to recognize, the husbands get all seven verses, all right? In verse 7, it's you husbands in the same way. So all the principles from verses 1 through 6 apply to you, and more than that, we're going to add now a seventh verse to your side of the picture here. So you're not not out of the picture in verses 1 through 6. Those six verses apply to men and women alike. And then the husbands have the added responsibility on top of that in verse 7. In any event, uh, verse 1, in the same way, you wives, and that's another in the same way that brings back uh, the details from chapter 2. But in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And so we speak to behavior. We speak to the character expressed through your actions as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Do the things you do communicate the Word of God or do the things you do communicate um, hostility to the Word of God? Your adornment must not be merely external. You've got to be dressed with more than the earthly uh, clothing the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, or the putting on of dresses. If that's all you're putting on is the external clothing, then you're naked. Okay? You are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, as Revelation 3 speaks of. You've got to have the inner beauty adorned first, and then, obviously, externals. But let it be the hidden person of a heart, and here's what you get dressed with, the imperishable quality of of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. And, and this to me, I was starting to say earlier, um, standards of beauty change, standards of, of earthly beauty change, um, clothing styles change, uh, You know, colors change and whatever. Um, but, what, but what doesn't change is inner beauty. <laughs> inner beauty today is the same as it was back in Abraham's day, same as it was in, in Solomon's day, same as it's always been. Inner beauty does not change. And uh, the standard is the standard. And uh, as opposed to the external beauty, which sags and wrinkles and fades, the inner beauty grows and grows and grows. See, in the process there. Am I still okay? Am I in trouble yet? All right. Almost crossed a line a little bit ago. In any event. All right, so um, precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also. What kind of women? (laughs) Holy women. We have uh, a statement here related to their salvation, their their discipleship, their walk, their character. Uh, Who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. And that's not an external submission, that's an internal submission. Submitting as unto the Lord. They were hoping in God. Their faith is not in the husband. Their hope is in the Lord, right? And if you are subject to your husband, it's as unto the Lord. You're not subject to your husband as unto the husband. You are subject to the husband as unto the Lord. And your faith is not in him. He's a knucklehead. Your faith is in the Lord, okay? And that's, uh, that's uh, important. And so, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, if you might recall, this text doesn't tell us that, but go back to Genesis 12. Sarah submitted to Abraham, and where did that get her? Captured, kidnapped, hauled off to Pharaoh's harem. And and yet, God protected her, blessed her, rewarded her, even though, like I say, husband's a knucklehead, makes bad choices. But there it is. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And so this is really kind of the, the female version of, of Romans, right? Where we're sons of Abraham by faith. We're daughters of Sarah by faith, you know, by imitation in terms of uh, godliness. And then, of course, make it uh, reverse it for the male gender as well. Men, your adornment must not be the externals. It's the hidden person of the heart. That's what uh, you want to be attractive in the inner man. All right, so there's the standard there. Really, verses 3 and 4 are focused on the inner beauty, outer beauty, pertaining to that. All right, back to Proverbs 11 then. In verse... 23 through 27. We've got a little four-verse poem here. Actually, five verses. Uh, crafted as, uh, in a, in, as a poetic unit. Uh, so let's take a look at it, and then we'll cover it under point E. Proverbs 11, 23. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is one who scatters, and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet results only in want the generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered he who withholds grain the people will curse him but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it he who walks or he who diligently seeks good seeks favor but he who seeks evil evil will come to him all right so we got these verses on generosity that are spoken of here Generosity is a grace appreciation. Verses 23 through 27 forms a poetic unit here in the Hebrew of this text, and it all centers on the, the appreciation of grace that then motivates generosity. That if you are truly appreciative of the grace you've received, you will express that grace yourself. Externally, you will express that grace in a generosity. Generosity. So generosity is a grace appreciation, and to the extent that you become the the Scrooge, the miser, the one that is not gracious and merciful and lending and generous, uh, then we what we observe then is a reflection upon the soul that is not grace oriented the way that it's supposed to be. You got to you got to be oriented to grace first, and so the issue is not jumping all over a, a miser and uh, throwing them into a guilt trip, you're not uh, because he already has mental attitude issues. Don't add to those mental attitude issues. Uh, that's all a guilt trip can do. Uh, We've got to teach grace. We've got to transform thinking through the full appreciation of grace. And if you only have a small appreciation of grace, you need a larger appreciation of grace. And the best way to promote generosity and, and uh, mercy is to reinforce these uh, these applications of grace, and we see it here all right, so again, let's uh, look at it and see how these uh, grace principles come through. I think um, I think that uh, they're expressed in in every verse here. Maybe the final verse is what um, serves to summarize the everything that precedes he, uh, he who diligently seeks good seeks favor, seeks grace. But he who seeks evil, evil will come to him. What is it that we're diligent about? Doesn't scripture tell us to be diligent, to present ourselves approved before God's face? Workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Are we not supposed to be diligent? I think the, uh, what happens with a grace diminishment is we get lazy. We stop studying to show ourselves approved. We, we stop viewing ourselves as his workmen. We stop viewing ourselves as his workmanship. We forget that there's work to be done. There's good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We grow content and complacent with us where we are. And that's the diminishment of the grace perspective. And uh, diminish the way it is? Yeah, of course. Other things get impacted. We become less merciful, less gracious, less generous. We get more stingy in certain things. Well, there it is. All right. And so I think in all of these, um, many of these verses should be uh, remind you of other passages because I think New Testament passages and other commandments that come from the law speak to this. Um, certainly related to uh, scattering, yet increases all the more. Right? Doesn't, doesn't the New Testament say, if you sow abundantly, you will reap abundantly? All right? Um, to scatter more, increasing more. Um, if, uh, we see the principles there, I think there's some, uh, limitations on the part of some believers that want to limit how they scatter and where they scatter and keep it very confined and very controllable. Keep their, keep their harvest very, uh, uh very, uh, um, manageable whereby they can, they can reap it all and keep it all. <laughs> okay. As opposed to a wider scattering and a wider scattering because goodness, that's a lot more work. Are you kidding me? The more wider I scatter, well, what if it crosses a line? What if, it, what if I'm, as I'm throwing it out there, the wind carries it across the property line? My neighbor's going to benefit from my seed. That's not right. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, and that's more work. And you're gonna, it's going to be more work to tend it, more work to weed it, more work to harvest it, more work to gather it in. And when you do gather it all in, it's going to be more than you can eat. So what are you going to do then? shock of all shocks you might actually have to share some with somebody that has that that has a need because you have an abundance and they have a need and and yeah you're way ahead of I me mean, that's what jesus did in the the parable of that 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 guy that tore down all his barns so he could build bigger barns okay and the idea of sharing the abundance with someone that that needed uh never crossed his mind because he was rich to himself and he was not rich towards god and so we have the principles there. All of these generosity principles—they they kind of preach themselves. Um, you know, when you think of your desires and your expectations, and uh, the contrast in verse twenty-three. Or how about we withholding what does justly do? I mean, he worked for you. Pay him at the end of the day. Don't hold it to the next day. Don't hold it for a week. Don't hold it for a month. He worked a day. Pay him at the end of the day. And uh, then there's the generous man. He'll be prosperous. And the miser says, oh, no, no, I can't be generous. I've got to hoard what I've got. If I give away too much, then that limits what I can do. You'd be surprised see how God rewards it see how the generous spirit God uh, is able to make all grace abound you never suffer when you're generous you never suffer when you're applying grace this comes up in Philippians because they they gave in the depths of their poverty they were overjoyed to give in the depths of their poverty they gave according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave and uh, in Philippians Paul testifies to to uh, the increase to their account that happened because they were so generous in uh, in what they were giving So uh, you never suffer in that uh, God is able to make all grace abound. All grace abound. Uh, So uh, we don't want to withhold, and and, uh, other verses tell us not to withhold the wages from the labor to whom it's due. Uh, The generous man will be prosperous. He who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him. But a blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. And this is... uh, the privilege and the and the, the benefit there. All right? Um, this theme will come back again in Proverbs 28, 27. Proverbs 28, 27. These are the uh, other additional Proverbs of Solomon that were gathered during Hezekiah's days. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have... Many curses, pretty straightforward how about job job twenty nine what was job's attitude towards generosity? I think some people get this backwards. Some people get this backwards because I think they covet. I think they're envious, I think they covet I think they're uh, they're disgruntled um, occupy people that want to protest. You know the one percent or whatever they want to protest capitalism, they want to protest whatever they hate people that have money because they think they should have some of it or <laughs> whatever the case all right and so, in some respects, they have it upside down and backwards. they claim that that uh, the only reason these people might be might have some philanthropy or might have some some uh, you know might make donations or might be charitable. The only reason they do that is because they've you know they, they're already so filthy rich. It's the only reason why, because they can afford to be and they're just trying to make themselves look good. They don't really care. And all this other snide ugly stuff, like they can look upon the person's heart. I think it's more reflective upon the grumbler's heart <laughs> when they when they voice such things, all right? And and they never stop to ask themselves, might they have it upside down and backwards? You know, this guy. Who's so generous in giving all these all these uh, funds? Uh, is he doing that because he's so rich, or is he so rich because God has honored his graciousness? God has honored his perspective to financial blessings. See, what, you know which one's the har- the, car- the cart and which one's the horse? <laughs> okay, which one which came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, just, you know, what, what is the order on this? Why does God allow this to happen? Okay. And in the case of unbelievers, why does God let unbelievers get so filthy rich? Okay. You say, well, they're not honoring God, are they? They don't have divine viewpoint, do they? They seem to be, they seem to be flagrantly uh, hostile to the word of God. And yet they're still filthy rich and they still give all these things. Yeah. And God allows that too. See, and through that, he's blessing his own children. Through that, the wealth of the of the uh, wicked is being stored up for the righteous. All right, God's got a handle on all that. He probably uses more unbelievers as his as his filthy rich tools than believers, simply because the prosperity test is so difficult for for believers to deal with. So let the unbeliever, you know, have all that. It's all mammon anyway. Um. So Job twenty nine verses thirteen through eighteen. And uh, here's part of his own testimony. He says, uh, verse 12, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me. I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. He says, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. So he's testifying here. He's had this generous spirit that, that, Proverbs, uh, that Proverbs speaks to. Then I thought I shall die in my nest and I shall multiply my days as the sand. And so he felt that, uh, that he was secure to the end of his days based upon the godliness that, that he was reflecting in, uh, in his walk. Anyway, those are the verses there I think that speak to to the kind of generosity that God's wisdom will motivate Uh, appreciation of grace. Isaiah 58, verses 7 through 11. Isaiah 58, verses 7 through 11. Verse 7 says, Is it not... And um, they had chosen a fast for themselves and uh, some of their own religiosity that that they think might count for something. Well, if it's not according to God's design, if it's not his fast, why are you doing it? Um, so in verse 6, he says, Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless uh, poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth. See, in other words, uh, it's got to be a true repentance from the heart. You've got to have true generosity and grace appreciation. Otherwise, it's just an external fast and God's not impressed. And, and god looks upon the heart and he will reward it if it's real and he will judge if it is if it's phony so if it is real then your light will break out like the dawn and uh, your recovery will speedily spring forth your righteousness will go before you the lord of uh the glory of the lord will be your rear guard then you will call and the lord will answer you will cry and he will say here i am if you remove the yoke from your midst the pointing of the finger the speaking of wickedness If you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. You will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail." that a millennial promise uh, from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will rise up uh, the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. Anyway, so there's, uh, again, generosity. And it's being motivated by what? It's being motivated by grace, the reality of who God is and what God has provided and what God's plan is uh, And where God's plan is taking us. Finally, 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18. Passage that uh, Pastor Dan took us through not that long ago in 1 John. 3, verses 17 and 18. And it's interesting how many people name the name of Christ or say they love one another, but by their actions it Seems to be representing a different reality. And uh, do you love your brother or do you hate your brother? And uh, how is that manifest? How is your appreciation of grace then reflected by a, uh, a generosity in, in uh, love towards one another here? So uh, verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Well, rhetorical question, go ahead and answer it. It doesn't, (laughs) okay? It doesn't. If your heart is closed, that love is not abiding in you. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. All of the externals where you say what you say, but there's no heart behind it and there's no action to back it up. Is it real? Or is your heart closed? We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. Anyway, there's a larger context on that, but that's what we're dealing with there. All right, back to Proverbs 11, the next section. Riches cannot be trusted. 11.28 Eleven twenty-eight. Now, some people in, include verse twenty-eight in the poetry of twenty-three through twenty-seven. I, th- I think it's separate. I think it's uh, grammatically it, it has to be handled apart from twenty-three through twenty-seven. You might, I don't know, think of it as a as an addendum to twenty-three through twenty-seven. Uh, he who trusts in his riches will f- will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. And what do we learn from this? Riches cannot be trusted. Actually, so so write that down and believe it, but then think about it. (laughs) And then, well, actually they can be trusted. But they are trusted because any lie can be trusted, any false object can be be trusted, and that's the problem, okay? Okay. Actually, they can be trusted, but they must not be trusted by believers who fear God. You can place your faith in a false object. It's possible to do so. The consequences, of course, are wrong, (laughs) you know, damaging, uh, unnecessary, because you should have placed your faith in the right object. So um, I I think when, when the sermon gets preached that riches cannot be trusted, it's a bit misleading you know it can be but he who does he who trusts in his riches will fall so i mean the fact that there are some who do he who does falls proves that it can happen you can trust in riches but you're told not to you are commanded not to we all are commanded not to they must not be trusted by believers who fear god and then that's, this is why I think the, the prosperity test is as difficult as it is because money becomes a, a, a uh, source of earthly security and uh, the believer then gets uh, misguided and gets, gets his attention misdirected and he sees, uh, he sees an earthly thing that can provide earthly security and starts to replace God with, with his money that he's got starts to confuse earthly security with true spiritual security. And uh and if he's if he's well off enough, well then who needs God at this point? I can take care of it. I'm insured for everything, right? I've got this reserve and that reserve and I've got a diversified I'm I'm so diversified that you know no matter what tanks, these other things will keep me up. And uh and and yeah, insurance covers it all and and man, at this point I can't lose. I, I will never be a widow. I will never be shaken. I want You have all these expressions in the Old Testament for the prideful person that thinks that they are absolutely secure in everything. And who needs God at that point? In the, in the cosmic mindedness of it. You understand what I'm saying? And so, uh, no, we're commanded not to trust in that. Commandment number one is to have no other gods before me. And that includes all the wealth that you turn into a god once you accumulated enough of it. Okay, And so uh, we would take this, uh, we'd combine it again with Job 31. Job's a great example. Uh, Psalm 49, Psalm 52, Mark 10, 1 Timothy 6. Instruct those that are rich in this present world not to fix their hope. Right? Not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Okay, And what you think is diversified may not be. What you think is secure may not be. What you think is insured may not be. Because who's guaranteeing the insurance and who's guaranteeing the diversification and who's guaranteeing uh, all the rest of it? What happens when all that goes too? All right, well. Let's uh, I don't think, well we'll see. If we, if we rush we might be able to race through these. Otherwise we can save it for next week. Job 31, back to Job again. Verses 24 through 28, if, Job says, I'm not doing this, but if I have put my confidence in gold, if I have called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great, because my hand had secured so much, you know, Job says, I never did any of this. If I had, then great, I should be judged. If I had looked to the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been uh, iniquity calling for judgment for I would have denied God above. When When you embrace prosperity as your God, that is denying the God above. And Job is absolutely right about this, absolutely right about this. And you look at everything God has done and you claim credit for it. Look what I've done. I'm a self-made man. I've done this. I've done that. I've accumulated this. You got that pride of Nebuchadnezzar walking around looking at Babylon's glory, the great things you have done. Okay? Now, wealth uh, wealth takes you there quicker than anything. And uh, Job is right. You would be denying God above in that point. You're substituting money for God. Psalm 49 and verse 6. We're going to see in Philippians what supplies all our need. It's not government. It's not money. It's not all these things. It's my God shall supply all your need. Psalm 49. um, Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, bow uh, both low and high, rich and poor together. See, because of the heart attitude, everybody can make this application. And if you if you're of modest means or filthy rich or anywhere in between, regardless of your tax bracket, you should have God's perspective related to uh, related to wealth, related to all these things. My mouth will speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? So yeah tough days are coming, but I'm not afraid. Why? Because I've got money? No, I'm not afraid because I've got God. (laughs) Because I've got God, who cares? Whatever else is coming up. Even those who trust in their wealth (laughs) uh oh, and boast in the abundance of of their riches. So really, is that going to save you? No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Now money can solve issues, can solve earthly things, but it's not going to buy your eternal life. It's not going to deliver you for all eternity. God and God alone does that. Anyway, he sees that even wise men die. Obviously, we're not going to get through this because I'm getting sidetracked here in Psalm 49. <laughs> but I love this psalm so much. Um, he sees that even wise men die, stupid and senseless like perish, and leave their wealth to others. Right? So, I mean, there are stupid people and there are smart people, but we all die. And so uh, if you were smart enough to accumulate a lot or you were stupid enough to blow a lot, either way, you're just as dead as the other guy. And your, your heirs get what you whatever you had left. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. Now, here's the insanity trying to buy a form of eternal life uh, by a legacy. And if there's enough things named after you when you're gone, well, then your name is remembered forever. So that's kind of like living forever because your name is carried on forever. You're on a a hospital or you're on a town, you're on a park, or you're on a whatever, and uh and you're named this park is named after you and generations after generations then will speak of you when they go to Zilker Park. Well who's the Zilker guy anyway, right? And well yeah, they name your name but they don't remember you. Okay. But it's a it's it's a form of trying to feel better. If you build a big enough pyramid, then uh it'll last for a while. <laughs> but man and his pomp will not endure. He's like the beasts that perish. And so uh anyway, we get to go down to Sheol here and all the uh celebration that happens there. Well, I'm out of time, but this is this is a neat psalm here to be properly oriented to money. We'll come back next week. I'll drop myself a note so that I know we're on slide F. And we've covered Psalm forty-nine. we'll pick up there father thank you for your faithfulness thank you father for what you do provide your grace is sufficient and we uh, learn to get along in humble means we learn to get along in abundant means father uh, we've, we've learned how to stay faithful when uh, when half a million dollars shows up in the mailbox and we've learned to stay faithful father when uh, when things get pretty thin and we continue to stay faithful uh, Father, it's uh, it's amazing to watch how you provide. It's amazing to see 11 months in the red and then uh, uh, a month of December that puts us back in black for the year. It's uh, just faithful, Father, that you are faithful, faithful, faithful. And we thank you for that. And I pray that you keep us as an assembly and each one of us individually properly oriented to grace and to graciousness, to generosity and to all of these applications. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.